Well, those are great words written by Bill Wesley. You've just sat down, but uh, I wonder if you would stand again, would you? Reach around and shake hands with some people. You all look like you've got sunburn somewhere and you're in pain today. <laughs> Off it comes. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you for welcoming one another. Also gave me an opportunity to take my coat off. <laughs> Romans chapter 3, please. And if you didn't get an opportunity, take it right now. If you want to take yours off. Romans chapter 3. We're going to read verses 24, 25, and 26. You'll notice that verse 24 begins in the middle of a sentence. I believe the best way to understand this complete sentence is to put the last part of verse 22, beginning with, for there is no distinction, on through verse 23 in parentheses. I believe it is a parenthetical thought which underscores what he is saying. But so that we might understand clearly the thrust of the entire sentence, We'll begin reading in verse 22 where it says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Our hospitals and institutions are populated with people who have much the same basic problem, and that problem is guilt. Guilt either real or imagined. Genuine guilt is the reaction of the conscience to an offense against its standards. Unresolved guilt can produce all kinds of consequences in the life. Physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual consequences. I think this was illustrated graphically a few days ago when there was a documentary on national television regarding the war in Vietnam. Four or five men were interviewed as a part of this documentary. These men have one thing in common. They were all decorated in Vietnam, but they are now imprisoned for various crimes here in the United States. One particular man drew my attention. As the others, he had received awards and medals because of his heroism in Vietnam. But now he languishes in prison for a number of years. In the interview, he told of the, the effect of the war upon his life. It has resulted in his life being torn apart. 
And as he related his experience in Vietnam, his experience seemed to center around one particular occasion when in a moment of anger and unbelievable frustration, he massacred an innocent Vietnamese family, a mother, a father, and some children who just happened to be there. The guilt of that action has dramatically and tragically affected his life. Still today, he has nightmares of the war. And when he has those nightmares, he sees that family standing, watching him. If only people like that could hear and understand what our text is saying today regarding guilt, they could be helped. Because the Bible tells us that real guilt can be removed. Guilt is from God. It is part of the work of the conscience which he has built into us. But God has made it possible for a guilty person to be forgiven. That is the good news of our text today. You'll notice that the apostle brings up an age-old theological dilemma when he says in verse 26 that God has demonstrated his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of sinners. There have been those who have questioned how a righteous God could ever justify sinners and still be righteous himself. Of course, the answer to that dilemma is that God has completely and eternally dealt with sin through Christ's death and resurrection and has saved the believer by that work of Christ on the cross on his behalf. In the text that we're looking at today, we see three results of that saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. One is manward. The second is sinward in its impact. And the third is Godward. I am thinking of the three key words that we find in the word justified, or the noun justification. The next key word, redemption. And the third, propitiation. One of the reasons that I have gone to the New American Standard Version, at least for now, is because it retains some of these key words which the NIV translates into phrases. And I think it's important for us to hear the words and to understand what they mean. Justification, redemption, and propitiation are three results of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are more than just theological doctrines. They are life-transforming, guilt-removing truths that God gives to us in his word. Let's talk about them today. First, let's think about justification. Justification is one of the fundamental truths of biblical Christianity. Justification by faith was the cry of the Reformation which swept across Europe centuries ago. One of the initiators of that Reformation, Martin Luther, wrote these words in a sermon entitled Justification by Faith. I wish that those who still bear Luther's name today in their religion, that all of them at least, would believe what Luther wrote regarding justification by faith alone. He says, The foundation must be maintained without wavering, that faith without any works, without any merit, 
reconciles man to God and makes him good. As Paul says to the Romans, but now apart from the law, a righteousness of God hath been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ unto all them that believe. These and many other passages we must firmly hold and trust in them immovably, so that to faith alone, without any assistance of works, is attributed the forgiveness of sins and our justification. Well, it was that blessed truth which had been buried under ritual for centuries that caused the Reformation to flame throughout the uh, European continent and then eventually even to our country itself. Justification. What does the word mean? Well, the word justification is a legal term which deals with a criminal's position before a court of law. On the one hand, it means acquittal. It is used in this sense in Acts chapter 13, verse 39, when the apostle says, through him, that is Christ, everyone who believes is freed, or the word really is, is justified from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. What is he saying? Well, he's saying to those Jewish listeners that the law of Moses could not acquit them of their guilt before God. And so justification on the one hand means acquittal. But it's not a pardon only. It is also a reinstatement to a position of not having broken the law. And that's why pardon is an insufficient term to define justification. It's more than that. It means to declare one or to consider one to be righteous. It does not mean to make righteous. That is another doctrine called sanctification. This is a legal position before God in which one is declared to be righteous in his sight. It is not a matter of character. It is not a matter of conduct. It is a matter of a legal position. Whereas pardon deals with the past in our relationship to the law, it cannot deal with our future relationship to the law. But you see, justification does both. It goes into the past and into the future, and it sets us forever right in God's sight. If we were to give a definition of justification, maybe these words would suffice. It is the judicial act of God whereby those who put faith in Christ are declared righteous in his eyes, free from guilt and punishment. Do you understand what that means? It means if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that you are free from guilt and punishment, and as far as God is concerned, you are as good as one who has never sinned. You are forever set into a right relationship with himself legally, a relationship which cannot change. This includes the truth that God sees us as those who are in Christ. 
When God sees you, he sees you identified with Christ. He does not see you alone as just you. When he sees you, when he hears you, he sees and hears you as one who is in Christ, having trusted him. The apostle puts it wonderfully, doesn't he, in Philippians chapter 3, as he writes to those believers, and he says in verse 8, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him. What does he mean? He means to be found legally identified or united with Jesus Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And what he does there in Philippians chapter 3 is to give his own personal testimony as to what justification is. It means to be found in Christ, not having righteousness that we get from ourselves, a righteousness which is insufficient before God but having Christ's righteousness given to us because of our faith in Christ. Now going back to Romans chapter 3, I want you to notice the modifying phrases in verse 24. He says, being justified, and by the way, that's passive. Paul doesn't justify himself. He is justified by God. It is God doing the work, declaring Paul and every believer in Christ to be righteous. He says, being justified as a gift by his grace. Two phrases there which really complement one another. Grace is, of course, God's unmerited kindness in action toward us. And he says that it is a gift this justification. Literally it says being justified without a cause. What that really means is that there is no reason, there is no basis in you or in me that God should justify us. There is nothing in us that recommends us to God. Nothing without any cause whatsoever in us, God gives us the gift of righteousness. The cause is found in him, God himself. He provides the cause, and the cause is simply his grace, the riches of his grace, which he desires to manifest toward us. So that's the first result of Christ's saving work. Not the first logically, but the first that he mentions here in our text. The one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is justified, declared right with God. The second word is the word redemption. This is a word that is sinward in its effect. He says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption of which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means to pay the price of a slave. 
It is touchingly illustrated in the Old Testament in the life of a prophet of God whose name was Hosea. God commanded Hosea to take of himself a wife who was a harlot. He brought her to himself, he loved her, he cared for her, but in the process of time she went back to her whoredom. There came a day when that woman whose name was what? Gomer was placed on an auction block in the city of Jerusalem. She stood there naked before the eyes of the gawking crowd and was put up for sale as a used prostitute, nothing more than a slave. And God told Hosea to go and to buy his wife back. And in Hosea chapter 3, in those early verses in that chapter, tells how much Hosea paid for his own wife who had been unfaithful. And he brought, he bought her and brought her back to himself. And the whole picture there in Hosea is that Israel, the nation, has been unfaithful to God, but that he has bought the nation and will bring the nation back to himself. You see what a beautiful picture that is of redemption? It is to pay the price of a slave. There are really three Greek words, essentially, which are translated redeem or redemption in the New Testament. One of them simply means to purchase in the market. In those days, there were sections of the cities which were markets. They were called the agora. If you go to Corinth and the ruins of that city today where they have excavated, you will see the part of it that is called the Agora or the marketplace where they bought and sold wares and goods and food. What this word really means, and that word, Greek word is based on the word Agora, Agorazo, it simply means to buy something in the market. There's a similar word to that, which means to purchase out of the market. And the emphasis of this word is to take something out of circulation. We might illustrate it with a work of art. If you were to go out and buy a beautiful painting, you would bring that into your home, and perhaps someday you would sell it again and get a profit. A museum, however, when it buys a work of art, pays a great price for it, but a museum's purpose is not to sell it later to make a profit, but to take it out of circulation, to keep it for itself. It is that thought that is behind the second word. It means to purchase something out of the market and to keep it. And then there's a third word, which is the word that is used here in this word redemption, which literally means to loose or to set free or to deliver. Now, if you put all three of those words together, you have the picture of redemption, really, in the Bible, the redemption of sinners. It pictures us as slaves on a slave market who are purchased and taken out of the market, loosed then from slavery and set free. All those words combine to give us the full picture of redemption. To buy, to take out of the market, and to deliver, to set free. And it tells us here that that is what God has done for us. He has paid the price of our redemption. 
You remember the words of the Lord Jesus, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He said, The Son of Man has not come to serve, but to, rather to be served, but to serve. Isn't that right? What a great attitude that is. An attitude that all of us should exemplify. The attitude of being willing to serve and not to be served. And then he goes on to say, and to give his life as a what? A ransom for many. You see, his life was the ransom which was paid to deliver us from the slave market of sin. He has paid the price of our redemption. It was the price of his own blood shed for us. Now, what are the benefits of redemption? What do we receive from this blessing? Well, in Ephesians 1.7, it tells us that we have this blessing right now. It is the forgiveness of our sins. It says there, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins through the riches of his grace. One of the blessings of redemption is that here and now I am forgiven of my sin. And connected with that is the important thought of freedom from it. I'm not only forgiven for the penalty, but I am freed from the power of sin in my life. That whole theme is covered in detail in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7 and into chapter 8. But God has not only redeemed us from the penalty of our sin, but he has redeemed and delivered us from the power of it in our lives so that no longer do we have to be slaves to that master. And then in the future, there is another benefit of redemption. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, it tells us that right now we are awaiting what is called the redemption of our bodies. And that is referring to the rapture of the church. That is, that time when the Lord Jesus Christ will come back into the air and will shout, and with the sound of the trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That is what is called the redemption of our bodies. So not only our souls our spirits, the immaterial part of us are redeemed, but our bodies are redeemed as well by the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think of redemption, we should think of the Old Testament picture of what is called a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer was a family member who was able and willing to redeem a relative who had become a slave due to indebtedness. Now, there were regular times that such people had to be released anyway, according to God's law. But if there, were, if there was a relative who was willing and who was able to pay the price of the indebtedness, he could redeem his relative from obligation. Likewise, land if a person owned land but owed a great deal of money, the creditor could claim the land. But because the land was so important in God's economy with Israel, and because it was so identified with families, God provided that that land could be redeemed or purchased by a relative. 
so that it could be restored to the family that it properly belonged to. Those of you familiar with the story of Ruth in the Old Testament recognize that thought. Boaz was a kinsman redeemer, and he acted toward Ruth uh, in that capacity. A beautiful love story which pictures the work of the Redeemer, purchasing for himself. And you see, that's what God has done for us. In the Bible, we are called, in the King James translation at least, peculiar people. Today, that word means strange or queer in some way. But the word peculiar means a people of one's own, a special treasure. And you see, that's what we are to God. He has purchased us back to himself by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have the blessing of redemption. Are you laboring today under a load of guilt because of something that you've done in your past? If you will come to Jesus Christ today, he will redeem you from the penalty and the power of sin. He will forgive you of all of the past. Not only that, he will set you right for all of the future so that guilt will have no power in your life. Now there's a third result of the work of Christ that we see here, and that is found in this word propitiation. This word had a meaning to the pagans of that day. What it literally was to them was the appeasing of their gods. They had rather ornery gods who were temperamental. They were sort of like humans, exalted humans. And they might have a temper tantrum or a fit. And so in their mythology, they offered up propitiations, appeasements to satisfy their temperamental gods. That word, propitiation, is taken and put into the Bible in a better context. Literally what the word propitiation means is satisfaction. And if you want to slip that word in there, you can. Whom God displayed as a satisfaction. Because what it means is that Christ's work on the cross satisfied the just demands of God for judgment on sin. The Schofield Reference Bible puts it this way in one of its notes. Propitiation is not placating a vengeful God, but rather it is satisfying the righteousness of a holy God, thereby making it possible for him to show mercy righteously. W.A. Criswell has this note in some studies that he's produced. He says, Theologians have disputed the proper translation and consequent meaning of hilasterion, this Greek word, which is translated here as propitiation. Roman and Greek mythology pictured capricious gods with temperaments more unsettled than those of mortals. These gods had to have their anger assuaged and appeased by costly sacrifices. Uncomfortable with the concepts of wrath, judgment, and hell, faithless theologians have imagined that propitiation 
is a translation that relegates theology to the mythology of Greeks and slanders the character of God. They advocate expiation as the proper translation and so define the word as forgiveness in terms of cancellation of sins. Even though expiation is certainly included, in no sense is it an adequate translation. He goes on to say, Here the translators of the King James Version are precisely correct in rendering the word propitiation. Now listen to what he says. This is significant. The difference between the doctrines of propitiation in Christianity and in Greek mythology is bound up in the character of God himself. Being holy, perfect, and immutable, the living God is never capricious. And being immutable, he is never ruled by changing moods. Consequently, God's wrath is a settled disposition against evil. The just demands of God's holiness for the punishment and exclusion of sin must be satisfied. Propitiation is the work of Christ on the cross in which he met the demands of the righteous God against sin, both satisfying the requirements of God's justice and canceling the guilt of man. And so he is the propitiation for our sins. This word is first found in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament done about 200 years before Christ in Exodus chapter 25 verse 17. Perhaps it would be good to go back there so you can see how this word is used in that Greek translation of the Old Testament. It gives us a wonderful insight as to its significance. Exodus chapter 25 verse 17. We're coming here into the middle of God's orders to Moses as to how the tabernacle and its furniture was to be constructed and used. And in the verse we're looking at, Exodus 25, verse 17, he says, And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. And as you go on down through the context there, you see the words mercy seat. That word is the word that the translators chose to uh, use the word propitiation for. So literally what the word means in the New Testament is this, that Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. Let me explain to you what the mercy seat was to the Jews. They had within their tabernacle, their place of worship, two compartments. The first compartment was twice as large as the inner compartment. The first compartment was called the holy place. And into that area, the priests would go daily as they went about their routines of sacrifice. But into this inner compartment, only one person was allowed to go, and that only once a year. 
In that holiest, it was called, or the holy of holies, was only one piece of furniture. Does anybody know what it was? That's right, it was the Ark of the Covenant. There was a box. There were several articles put within that box as God had commanded. One of the articles being the two tablets of stone which Moses brought down from the mountain with the commandments on them. Those tablets were in the bottom of that box. What did they do? They testified of the righteousness of God. And those commands required the death of sinners. God's presence was always there in that tabernacle, over that box. But God provided that there would be a lid on top of the box made out of solid gold and from the ends of that beaten gold were to come two cherubim, large creatures, wings were 15 feet in length. And they were just to meet over the top of this gold lid. That lid was called the mercy seat. Now the reason it was called the mercy seat was because on the, the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, each year, the high priest would enter into that holy place in a carefully prescribed manner with the blood of a sacrificed animal. And he would offer the blood upon that gold lid to the ark, the mercy seat. And what it signified was that though the law was there requiring the death of sinners, God provided blood as an atonement for sin, so that as he looked down, what he would see would not be the law, but the shed blood, the shed blood of a sacrificed animal. So that what should have been a seat of judgment was a seat of mercy. God could then show mercy upon the nation of Israel. Now do you see why Jesus is called the mercy seat? In fact, it even mentions here his blood in our sentence in Romans. He is the mercy. He, God displayed publicly him as a propitiation, a satisfaction in his blood. In other words, his blood was offered up as propitiation. It meant that the righteous law requiring the death of sinners was fully satisfied. This was not the blood of animals, but the blood of the sinless Son of God, so that his blood was offered up for you and for me and for all men. When we come to the cross of Calvary, God's righteousness is demonstrated. And the apostle brings to mind here this demonstration of his righteousness, particularly as it relates to Old Testament believers. Apparently there were some who felt that God was ignoring human sin in those Old Testament days. That is, the atonement never did take away sin, did it? It simply covered it. Was God then just forgetting it? Was God just putting it out of it, his mind? No. God was waiting for the right time and the right way for those sins to be removed. You see, those people 
who died in faith in the Old Testament did not have their sins removed from the record book. The sins were still on record against them, though they were covered over by the blood that was shed, the blood of animals. But when the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross, he died not only for our sins in this age, but he died for those sins of the Old Testament as well, so that their sins were at that point completely removed from the record book. That's why God is said to be both righteous and the one who can call sinners righteous because he has paid for the sinner's sin. Then I want you to notice another thought here when it says that God has displayed publicly Christ as our propitiation. In the Old Testament, when the high priest came into that inner compartment, he was there alone. His work was done in secret. No one could see. In fact, they had bells that were tied to his robe so they could be sure he was still alive after entering into that holiest. They could not see him to know whether he had been struck dead by God because of of some error, some sin, perhaps. And so they had bells tied and they could hear him walking around in there and they would know he was still alive. All of it was done in secret. But at Calvary, God did a marvelous thing. Publicly, He exposed and displayed the Lord Jesus Christ as a propitiation for your sin and mine. Quite a contrast to that Old Testament economy. God has now once and for all offered up his son as a propitiation on our behalf. This verse, verse 25, has been the verse that God has used to bring many to faith in Christ. One of them is William Cooper. William Cooper lived in a different century, but we sing his hymns today, and I will mention one in a moment. In his memoirs, he writes these words of testimony. The happy period which was to afford me a clear opening of the free mercy of God in Christ Jesus was now arrived. I flung myself into a chair near the window and seeing a Bible there, ventured once more to apply it for comfort and instruction. The first verse I saw was the 25th of the third of Romans, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Immediately I received strength to believe it. And the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In an instant, I believed and received the peace of the gospel. Unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears. Transports choked my utterance. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. But the work of the Holy Ghost is best described in his own words. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. It is this same William Cooper who later wrote the words, There is a fountain filled with blood 
drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Great work of salvation accomplished for us in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It includes justification, redemption, propitiation. Dear friend of mine, salvation may be free, but it's not cheap. It cost God the life of his only begotten son. If you turn your back on God's provision for your salvation, then you walk away to eternal misery and damnation. To reject Christ is to leave yourself without hope and without God. It is to accumulate judgment and ultimately to lose your own soul. To neglect Christ is to gamble with your most valuable possession, your own soul. There is no passage in the Bible that makes more clear how God has provided for your salvation. Have you received it for yourself? Have you given your heart to the Savior and trusted Him? Do you notice again and again the words, by faith, those who believe? Will you today turn from whatever you're trusting in and trust alone, depend alone, rely only upon the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? If not, if you've not done that before, will you do it today? And I have this word for those of us who have made that decision. It seems to me that the text before us is a marvelous one to serve as a motive for our serving the Lord. We don't serve him out of fear, but out of love because of his work of redemption, his propitiation on our behalf, the justification that we have received as a gift. The blessings that Israel of old had were conditional. God said, if you will, then I will. But folks, do you understand the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus? are unconditional. They're already given to us, every one of them. What a great motive for service that is. And it seems to me that the text we have before us is also a great relief to our fellowship. For many have the idea that in order to have fellowship with God, they have to perform up to a certain level. If they perform well, then they feel close to God, and if they fail or are unresponsive in some way, then they feel far away and rejected. Nothing could be further from the truth. God receives us. God accepts us not on the basis of how we perform, but on the basis of the fact that we are in Christ. You could not be nearer to God than you are today in Christ. And that nearness to him is not conditioned upon how good you are. It is conditioned upon the grace that has received you already. Some people reduce the Christian life to a set of rules, of do's and don'ts, and they badger themselves and others with guilt. I would like to say to you today that that is wrong. 
we serve the Lord and we fellowship with him because we love him, because of all the blessings that are already ours in Christ. But are you serving him today? Are you walking in fellowship with him? The songwriter said, How long has it been since you talked with the Lord? How about it? If you're out of fellowship with him today, will you come back? Will you bend the knee again, acknowledge his lordship, confessing your sins? Let's pray. Gracious Father, the words that we have studied this morning are amazing words. We would not believe them if you had not said them. But because they are part of your infallible and errant word, we can depend upon them today and know that by grace, through faith, we are saved, apart from works, that Jesus Christ has paid the full price for our sin, that he has satisfied your righteous demands in the law so that we are found free from the law in its condemnation. There are some of us who have trusted that truth and know the Savior, but who are living unfaithfully. Then today, cause us to come back to that place of obedience, that we may experience and appropriate daily all that is ours in Christ. If there is some friend who's never trusted the Savior, help him to do it today. For Jesus' sake, amen.